Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hey, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Welcome to Space Boffins, the award-winning space podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists with Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham. This time we're off to the Red Planet with reports on the Mars MAVEN mission, a study into Martian radiation dangers, and we'll hear from a woman who's determined to get there. Well, I'm hoping that I'll be on maybe the third mission where it's not as risky because I do want to actually survive this. Well, today we're in the council room of the Royal Astronomical Society in London, and our guests naturally have a connection to it. They are the Society's Dr Robert Massey and its space scientist, President Professor David Southwood from Imperial College London, who's also former Director of Science and Robotic Exploration at the European Space Agency. Well, as this year's upcoming World Space Week is exploring Mars and the Mars Science Laboratory is a session highlight during this month's European Planetary Science Congress, well, it seemed an excellent time to examine some of the future missions to Mars. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Let's start with our guests. David, what do you think it is about Mars that gets people excited? I think it's because it could have been like the Earth. I think we all feel there, but for fortune, (laughs) we could have gone. And so you can turn it around and say, if you were going to live anywhere else in the solar system, I think Mars would be the first place you'd look. It's uh, clearly been the place chosen by science fiction authors and so on, but it's not such a foolish idea. If you did have to move off the Earth... I think the first real estate you would check out would be Mars. There's lots of problems with it, but uh, that's where you'd go. Robert, as an astronomer, is, is, is it the fact that Mars is one of the, the few planets that most people can identify in the night sky? You know, it's a really intriguing object, Mars, because it's only really good to look at on something like every 15 or 17 years when it comes relatively close to the Earth. It, it sort of comes close-ish every couple of years, but that's the kind of time scale when you get a really good view of it. So I think it's, it's fascinated people who looked at it through a telescope because it was the, the occasions when they got a great view of it were so rare. And, of course, that interest has only been enhanced by the space age because we see these pictures from the surface and you imagine this landscape you can walk around on. I mean, it just looks like a desert on Earth. So it's very easy to imagine, you know, rather than... Uh, it being a robotic rover trundling along and looking at a rock, that it's actually you going along and picking it up and taking a close look. So I think that's why it's got that ability to capture the imagination of the public. It's cold, dark, and there's no atmosphere. No, not Ipswich. We're still talking about Mars. Why would anyone want to live there? Again, still Mars. If you did set up a colony on Mars, you'd also be subjected to higher doses of radiation from the sun and galactic cosmic rays. Well, this radiation is being studied by a team led by Don Hassler, principal investigator for the radiation assessment detector on the Curiosity rover. I recently met up with Don in his office at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, and started by asking him what they'd found so far. The radiation environment is variable. It depends uh, on the seasons. It depends on uh, the, the atmospheric pressure, which depends on the seasons. It depends on the heliospheric environment, on the sun, on all these things. But it also depends on the local geology and, and geography on, on the surface. 
there's secondary radiation, the neutron radiation coming from the surface, which will vary depending upon the composition of the surface. Also, if we go along a rock wall or overhang or outcrop, you know, that will affect the radiation environment. But these measurements all then feed into understanding the influence or the effect of the radiation on habitability and the preservation of biosignatures in the geologic structures. Are you surprised at the way that Curiosity has, has caught people's imagination? I mean, you work on the, in this sort of thing, and you know we all know space is cool and all this stuff is great, but this has really got people's attention. I wouldn't say I'm surprised. I'm very pleased. Um, it is fantastic. I mean, you know, ever since I was a boy, ever since, you know, six years old, I wanted to be an astronomer or an astronaut, and I'm living that dream. It's fantastic to share that enthusiasm and that excitement with with everyone I talk to, actually. I mean, I, there isn't a single person that I talk to. I meet on an airplane or I meet, you know, um, you know wherever I am that I, I start talking to them about this mission or about what I do, and they're, they're just they're fascinated, they're excited, and they say, you know, that's, that's, that's fantastic. That's what we should be doing. And, and do you think it's reignited people's interest in a long-term strategy to, to put people on, on Mars? I mean, the questions that you get asked is all about, you know, when humans go to Mars, how will we live there, how will they be affected? Do you think that's what's now in people's minds, that this is the plan? Well, I think so. I mean, exploration is, is in our genes. I mean, the human species, you know, one of our great legacies is, is exploring, journeying out to places unknown. And, you know, our, one of our great legacies of our, of, our, of our race, of our species, will be the exploration that we've done. I think that, you know, long after civilization on Earth may have, have ended, there'll still be the remnants of our civilization, of our, civilization, of our exploration, of our, of our technological achievements on the surface of the moon and on the surface of Mars because they don't have the weathering processes from an atmosphere that, that we do on Earth. So they will last millions, if not billions, of years. And uh, so a future you know, species and future races coming to explore our solar system you know, may learn about the human, the human species, human race, you know, from our technological rovers and landers that we've left on these other planets. And do you think that will now happen? I mean, a few years ago, it was different, difficult to even imagine humans on Mars. Now it seems much more likely that there will eventually be astronauts there, whether private or, or public. Well, I think we have the technology. It's really a question of will, political will, you know, desire, um, building a consensus that this is one of the things that's important to do. But what's interesting in the equation now is that there's private companies, not just governments, that are you know, planning to, to undertake these missions, and I think that's fantastic. Would you go? I, I, I'm, I love doing the science, but I think we have a perfectly good planet right here. I'm very comfortable, uh, you know, on Earth. I think we definitely need to take care of this planet. But, you know, there's certainly others that have the, the driving ambition, and many would say they would go even if they knew it was a one-way trip. Because that's what I can't really understand. You look out of your windows here, you've got Boulder, which is a very pretty town, nestling beneath the foothills of the Rockies, and then you've got the sky above, there are trees, the mountains. I mean, it's a stunning view just from your office. Why would anyone want to go to this barren, rusty, atmosphereless rock of Mars? Well, fundamentally, it goes back to our you know, desire to explore, I believe. And in a sense, going to the moon in the 60s, uh, even when we just orbited the moon and took our first pictures of the Earth from the moon or from you know, lunar orbit, 
gave us a sense of, you know, of, of Earth as a, as a system and, you know, as a special and unique place in the solar system. So, you know, going to Mars will um, perhaps uh, reinforce our, our need and our desire to take care and protect, you know, our own planet. Don Hassler, Principal Investigator for the Radiation Assessment Detector on the Curiosity rover. Uh, David, let's just talk about that, that radiation first on Mars, what, what he's interested in. And what are the chances, or what is the likelihood of anything on Mars, say there had been life, of surviving that, of us finding life on Mars as a result of all this radiation that's zapping the surface all the time? Well, first of all, you can be under the surface and so one can look under the surface for at least organic activity etc etc there are natural ways to hide from the uh, dangers of radiation I think when we look for life on Mars we're not really looking for little green men with uh, two legs and two arms that's hugely disappointing (laughs) I'm sorry to disappoint you Uh, so I think really you've got to recognise that in the most extreme environments on our own planet, life does, in some maybe inadequate form, manage to get a foothold. And so the radiation certainly is a major threat to people like us, but it's very hard for us to believe maybe, but there can be life forms that are very different from us. Okay, what about the people like us? The people like us who, for some reason, want to go to Mars, and we'll hear from one of those in, in just a moment. Are they going to be threatened by this radiation? Is it, is it a serious concern? Yes. I, I, I mean, it's clear. <laughs> you, 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 uh, you're out there, you're unprotected by the magnetic field that we have at Earth. There, there are local magnetic fields at uh, at Mars, but you're actually exposed to whatever the sun or the universe can throw at you. It's hazardous and it's necessary. Therefore, if we were going to send people there to live for any period of time, we would have to have some kind of protection. And that tends to be rather massive. Um, I thought it was quite telling when Richard said, do you want to go there, that that very telling, long silence I, <laughs> said it all, I think. I, I was in complete agreement. <laughs> I would have added my voice to that silence. Well, actually, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, as a former director of robotic exploration at ESA, are you firmly in the unmanned mission camp or are you pro-human exploration? I'm very much in favour of human exploration. I just think you have to talk about coming back to tell people about where you've been exploring. There, there for me, is the issue. And it's also horses for courses. I thought the Apollo missions, the moon, with human beings on board were absolutely fantastic because there's a vicarious sense you go there. I mean, you can identify with curiosity. Identifying with real people is easier and um, so I am not against putting humans into space I just think you have to be a little bit practical about the limits to human capability and the fact robots do do some things so much better and Robert that's the issue at the moment isn't it that the, the really is not the capability to send someone to Mars and bring them back again oh, I think we have the capability to do it but the question is do you want to commit potentially hundreds of billions of dollars to that exercise I mean when I think about this it's 
the Apollo program had a particular aim, a very political one, as well as you know, as well as an exploration one, and then the science almost was the the great byproduct from that. But with Mars, the idea that spending you know one estimate is a hundred billion dollars could be a lot more. You send people there, you bring them back. But what's your legacy? You know, are you are you saying this is a first step in colonizing another planet and setting up some sort of flow of people regularly between these two worlds, or is it just a one shot? And if it's just a one off thing, then you know, do you want to do that right now, or do you want to wait until you can do it for rather less money, more efficiently, more safely, and more quickly? And I suspect that until we get some of those points in there that it, I, I'm very skeptical as to whether it will happen on the 20 year time scale which is often said you know people say I'll put, put people on Mars in the 2030s but they were saying that in the 1980s about the 2000s and the 1990s about the 2010s and so on you know the, every new US president commits to this and knowing full well that they'll be out of office long out of office by the time uh, anybody looks at the, the pledge at the time it's not like the Apollo program where you know you had a discrete time scale of a decade and there was really quite a high expectation that that target would be met. Well, as we heard from Don Hassler, Mars isn't going to be the most welcoming of planets. Nevertheless, earlier this year, there was a call for astronauts who were prepared to go on a one-way trip to Mars. Mars One will establish human settlement on Mars in 2023. In that year, the first group of four humans will land on Mars. Every two years after that, another group will join the settlement. Well, by the time of the deadline, on August the 31st, 165,000 people had applied for the Mars One mission, and they included a 20-year-old physics student, Chile Infinity, from the University of Sheffield. Now, you might recognise the name if you're a regular listener to the podcast because Gillian was one of those astro girls who along with myself recently tried and sadly failed to become an astronaut through the Lynx National Space Challenge. Well Gillian is also an English snowboarding champion. She competes in 15 sports so she's super fit, science graduate to be and as you'll hear now very determined. Here's why she wants to go on a one-way trip to Mars. It's the most important significant thing anyone could ever do like if you think about what you want to achieve with your life I don't just want to have an office job and just do a normal have a normal life I want to do something worth writing about worth do like just contribute as much as I possibly can towards the world of science and also to like making history and that is the best way I can think of doing that and I'm prepared to risk my life for that you say you're prepared to risk your life for that. I mean, that's quite a serious consideration because people, in fact, guests on our pod- podcast, one of them said it was a suicide trip. Well, I'm hoping that I'll be on maybe the third mission where it's not as risky because <laughs> I do want to actually survive this. And I, I'm not worried about being the first one to do it as long as I can help in any way I can. It doesn't matter if I'm first, fifth, fifteenth. I would rather make sure everything's as safe as possible before I go. The fact that you're uh, studying science must surely put you at an advantage because traditionally most astronauts either come via the pilot route or their mission specialists. That's exactly the route I was taking. When I chose my degree, I had the mission specialist astronaut route in mind. So if I don't get the Mars 1, I'll be doing a PhD hoping to go down that route. So, yeah, it should put me at an advantage because, I mean, it is a requirement for the NASA and ESA missions. But, however, there is a lot of applicants that do have a science background and you do get training with science as well as part of the mission. So it might not be as important as it should be, but I don't know. The next stage you have to prove that you're medically fit. When will you find that out? 
I'll be checking my emails every half hour for the next probably two months, but we should find out in September or October, but it might take longer than that. So hopefully I'll know before I start uni, that'd be great. And then I can start joining the gym um, <laughs> and get my medical thing done. Best of luck, and we hope to hear more from you in the future. Thank you. Gillian Finity, and we will, of course, report on her progress in future podcast i must admit if i wasn't married didn't have a child it's the sort of thing i probably would have applied for in my 20s as well yeah but interesting isn't it that she said i want to be on the third <laughs> mission yeah. Here we are, the, 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 the most enthusiastic person and she still doesn't want to go first okay at risk of another ominous silence um let's put that to our to our guests here david first of all would you sign up for i don't know the third mission the fourth mission and um, you know, you're you are semi-retired. Is that is that fair fair to say? Buzz Aldrin, also semi-retired, has said he would like to go to Mars. He would like to go to Mars, and that's where he'd like to spend the rest of his life. Could you do sign up? I don't think I would. And it's not actually. I suspect when I was twenty, I would have been closer to wanting to commit to that. And if you sign up for this, and you're accepted. This is what you're going to do. And if you go to Mars without means to come back, you are going to be colonising on Mars. That's very, very hard work. That's work for a young person, not somebody of my age. And I'm afraid my career is over. I'm not going to make a career out of pioneering on Mars Robert, do you fancy being a pioneer on Mars? You've got a y- <laughs> young family and it can yeah, take them with you. It'll go down very well, I'm sure, with them. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think it's... This is this probably isn't the project for it anyway. I don't... You know, Mars One reality TV involvement and the rest of it, most people don't really seriously expect this to become reality. I mean, you know, maybe prove wrong, but I, I have very grave doubts that they'll actually manage to pull this off. Certainly not for the budget they're suggesting, $4 billion, which is very, very small to send a lot of people and keep doing it, getting them out to Mars to establish a colony. So we'll see. But would I go? I'd go under certain circumstances, I think. Probably probably uh, some assurances about safety and the rest of it. Whether I'd want a one-way trip is another matter, though. The, the prospect of going there and never being able to return. It's probably the kind of thing you do when you have no commitments or maybe you know maybe if you know you're terminally ill and you think hell why not you don't want to spend the last few months of my life on mars <laughs> but but i don't know whether i'd want to abandon life on earth completely for for that although obviously you know good luck to if, if it happens good luck to the people who are involved because i'm sure they'll have an incredible experience david when you're at ESA, you uh, played a crucial involvement in, in sort of getting europe to, to mars what position are we at today is it very much not so much, which it feels like whenever you hear of the different missions, be it ExoMars, the, the ESA one, or, or listening to, to, to Maven and, or, and, and the NASA missions, there's so much involvement now between European scientists and American scientists. It's almost hard to tell where one sort of nationality begins and another one ends. It feels much more collaborative now. Well, I think that's a good thing. Uh, science is for everybody, not just for anyone of any particular nationality. On the other hand, to raise the kind of money you need to do serious Martian exploration, you've got to play on something beyond just pure science. Uh, it's just the way of the world, I'm sad to say. So the issue of technological goals and technological benefits always is going to come in. I think one of the big changes which ExoMars and the challenges faced by ExoMars has done in the last 10 years of tribulations it's suffered 
is recognizing, I think it's generally recognized, there's a technological benefit down here on Earth. And the funny thing is, the inspiration that comes with pushing the limit, with going to the edge, doesn't get attached to just playing with the problems on Earth. It's knowing you're going out to the final frontier. You know, I feel we Europeans have made a start, but we're not really up there in the way the US or indeed the Russians used to be in feeling they had to be there. Uh, it's interesting you should raise this idea of, oh, it's got to have an Earth, Earth benefit. Do you think people really feel that? I mean, certainly the, the listeners to this podcast don't feel that. There's an awful lot of space enthusiasts who don't feel that. And you look at the legacy of Apollo, that was really all about the, the inspiration rather than Teflon. the science. So everyone you know, maybe talks about Teflon, but actually... Isn't the inspiration more important? Can't you just sell it on the inspiration? I suppose that's what I'm, I'm getting at. I wish you could. And I think you can in a country that feels young, open, endless frontiers. I think we Europeans are rather old. We're old Europe and we're rather cynical. And we have difficulty imagining wide open frontiers in front of us. And I'm not talking about the people listening to the podcast. I'm not talking about myself either. What I'm talking about is the political environment here and how you actually get the public money committed, or indeed even private money. And that's the difficulty, isn't it? That's because the difficulty. We've, you know, professionally as journalists, we've covered ExoMars for about 10 years, yeah. and it, it's always been a problem getting the funding, getting the funding. I must say, though, I love the fact I looked up that one of your papers, published papers online, is called When International Partnerships Go Wrong. <laughs> so I want to know, is this from direct experience of working at the European Space Agency on missions? That, that title is absolutely correct, and it is that's, a, that's autobiographical, I'm sad to say. Uh, things do go wrong, and they often are politically motivated uh, when they do go wrong. Um, and it is, if you don't pay attention to the political side of thing, if you just say oh, well, let's all get together and go to Mars, people will say, say yes, but then you've got to get the glue that makes it a win-win arrangement for every partner providing resources. And that situation can even change with a change of president or prime minister. I mean, it's really, you've got to be very clever about how you do it. And what's happened with ExoMars? It started off as a Europe alone, under my um, period of being in charge, it switched to being jointly with the US because it was clear that Europe alone wasn't going to get there. And that's simply a level of commitment wasn't there. And now the Europeans suddenly found themselves rather let down by the Americans. They've switched to a cooperation with the Russians. Now, for me, that's terrific. I, I've been... I'd made endless trips to Moscow trying to get them involved, but they knew I was going with the Americans. And to get a tripartite arrangement was very, very hard. I mean, it's um, uh, bilaterally, once the Americans were out of the picture, I was fascinated by the speed at which Russia stepped in to a partnership with Europe that seems to be perfectly serious. Uh, and what's that about? Is that a, a Russian prestige, or is that because there are so many frustrated Russian scientists that actually want to successfully get to Mars? Because they failed to do that in recent years. I 
I think it's neither of those two things. I think it is something a little more complementary to the Europeans. I think there is a sense that Russia was very big at the beginning of the space age, very successful until about 1990. Something They've got an enormous asset in their heritage, but something has gone wrong. Moreover, we're living in the 21st century now. Europeans do things differently. You know, we produce companies like Surrey Satellites, for good or ill, and I could name companies in other parts of Europe as well, that kind of are coming at the game 60 years after the space age started. And I think that's actually what the Russians are looking at. They're looking at how the Western approach to things can shake up their heritage and exploit it. I, I don't know. That's my feeling. But Robert, is this the, the political sort of machinations? Do they affect astronomy as much? Because although you've got your space telescopes, you've still got ground. You could do an awful lot of astronomy from the ground, unlike, you know, perhaps not to the same percentage as, say, space science. Well, I mean, the answer is yes, because increasingly major telescope projects are far too much for one nation to accomplish on their own. So, you know, the best examples in the European context are the European Southern Observatory in Chile with many partner nations, uh, with question marks over whether Brazil, which has signed up to be a partner but hasn't ratified it, will go through that process. So some of the future projects in that, you know, are, are, are in doubt because of that. Uh, there's also ALMA, which uh, brings in Europe and also, you know, other nations around the globe as well. And I think the answer is that when you try to do something on a huge scale, you need a lot of countries buying into it. And David's quite right. It's, it's about getting those political ducks in a row and, and making sure that uh, countries that sign up to it, say, with one administration maintain that commitment when there's an election you know perhaps not such an issue in China but if you if you look at many countries around the world change of government you know austerity kicks in they say how committed are we to this project so it is up to the astronomers the scientists well, to be part of making that case and say look here are the fundamental benefits from this project not just in scientific return um, not just in inspiration but actually look these are some of the things that have come out of space science in the past and astronomy in the past you can expect more of the same if you commit to this project yeah if only cuba had had a space program same <laughs> castro in for decades think what they could have achieved <laughs> yes this is the space boffins podcast in partnership with the naked scientists well even the most optimistic predictions as we've heard don't see humans on the surface of mars for well 10 20 years something like that but uh, what about the next Mars mission. Well, that's called MAVEN, a tortured acronym which stands for Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution. Well, evidence suggests that Mars once had the conditions suitable for life, including liquid water, and its curiosity continues to trundle its way slowly across Gale Crater. MAVEN will orbit the planet to examine whether the atmosphere could also have provided life support. Just before it was shipped off to NASA for launch, I went to see the final checks being carried out on the two-metre-high spacecraft at Lockheed Martin's facility in Denver. My guide was MAVEN program manager Guy Butelcheese. What we're looking at right now is the spacecraft is, as you say, going through its final preparations. We're going to be shipping the spacecraft down to Cape Kennedy in about a month, so there's some final testing that we need to do. So if you look out into the clean room, you can see the spacecraft. It's actually on a large piece of ground support equipment 
that will hold the spacecraft in place and can actually orient it and rotate it so that we can work on different sides of the spacecraft. Today, what we're doing are we're putting our solar rays back onto the spacecraft. We had taken them off for a special set of tests. We're putting them back on so that we can do a test next week that's going to determine very precisely the mass properties. So the noise you hear right now is the crane moving along, getting ready to lift the solar ray up move it over next to the spacecraft so that our technicians can bolt it on. And the spacecraft itself, it, it's really just a, a shiny silver box with some gold bits on the side. That's right. All the, uh, all the uh, complicated things are all inside that silvery uh, material. What that material is, is thermal blankets. So going to Mars, we're further away from the sun, and so we need to pay a lot of attention to keeping the spacecraft and all of its sensitive components warm enough way out at, at Mars orbit. And so, in a sense, what we've done is we've blanketed almost the whole spacecraft underneath those thermal blankets so that we keep that heat in, keeping all of our electronics right where they need to be. So that's the spacecraft. What about the science? What we know from our missions looking at the surface of Mars is that there used to be water there. We can see the outlines of ancient rivers, ancient shorelines of oceans, But water can't exist there now. The atmosphere is too thin and too dry. Any water, liquid water on the surface would immediately evaporate. So that's the big scientific question is what happened to the atmosphere? It used to be thicker, warmer, wetter. Now it's thin and dry. How did it get there? What is it like at the moment? I mean, can you compare it to the Earth's atmosphere in any way? Yeah, it's, uh, it's basically equivalent, equivalent to the very upper reaches of the atmosphere. It's about 1% of the density of the Earth's atmosphere. So that gives you a feel for kind of uh, how harsh those conditions would be. And how do you know that it was thicker in the past, that there was more to it? Right. And the, the, the main thing that we know is that because we can see these outlines of rivers and lakes and oceans that look like they were stable for longer periods of time, and that's what we're building on all these other Mars missions that we've done. So both uh, things like Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and Mars Odyssey orbiting and uh, rovers on the surface – and especially the Mars Phoenix lander that we did here at Lockheed Martin actually landed and found ice buried under a very thin layer of dust, basically a frozen ocean. And so we know water was there, and we know by looking at the geology and some of the minerals that some of the rovers have found that the water was in liquid form long enough to affect the geology of the surface. And so looking at that, we can infer that at some point the atmosphere had to be thicker, warmer, wetter to support that liquid water on the surface. Because otherwise you just couldn't have had liquid water at all on there. Exactly. It, it, it would have immediately evaporated and wouldn't have been there long enough to actually create some of these minerals that some of the rovers are, are finding right now. Now, you're not building a time machine, so how can you use it to look into the past atmosphere? It, it, it's funny you mention that. We, In a sense, we kind of are building a little bit of a time machine because what we're doing is we're taking our science instruments we're looking at the atmosphere. We're looking at the how the solar wind interacts with the atmosphere. And in a sense, what we're doing is we're understanding the physics, understanding the processes, so that we can build a model of the atmosphere. Um, if we know what the solar wind is doing and how uh, elements of the atmosphere are being lost to space, we can use this model to, in a sense, turn back the dial 
and see when in the in the in the past Mars would have been suitable for having water on the surface. Just explain the connection then between the solar wind, the stream of charged particles from the sun, and and the atmosphere, and and, and why the atmosphere is, is, has disappeared. Right. So basically, the the solar wind coming off of the sun contains a lot of charged particles, and as they hit the atmosphere, they're actually there's some physics properties that causes elements of that atmosphere to be lost to space. Now, there's a whole variety of these physics processes that are going on, and that's why we take a, a large number of science instruments, some looking at the solar wind and what its constituents are, and some looking directly at the atmosphere to see what are the elements of atmosphere and how are they interacting with these charged particles from the solar wind. This is key, really, isn't it? Because the, the Earth maintains its atmosphere because it has this magnetic bubble around it, the magnetosphere. So the charged particles can get deflected in a way or get protect, the Earth's protected from these, these charged particles. Mars, this is the issue, isn't it, that it hasn't got a magnetic field or, or no longer has a magnetic field. That's right. And so part of the reason that we're studying Mars is it will also help us understand better how the Earth and its magnetic field and its atmosphere uh, behave relative to the solar wind. So one of the things that we're doing is we're actually taking magnetometers there um, because there are places on Mars that have kind of a residual magnetic field associated with them that kind of gives us some indication that in the past, you know, a magnetic field played a part in the history of Mars. Are you heartened by the amount of interest there is in all these Mars missions? I mean, Curiosity obviously has got the, gets the, the big headlines, but actually any Mars mission seems to get people's attention. I, 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 I love it. I mean, this is exactly why I went into the field myself. As a, as a young boy looking up, I, you know, dreamed of, of other planets, exploring other planets, and uh, especially Mars has had a pull uh, on, uh, on a lot of people. Uh, it's, it's close. It has a lot of similarities to Earth. Um, you know, imagine that, that we had a planet sometime in the past. We had two planets in the solar system with oceans on them. Um, and so that certainly raises the question in everybody's mind, could there have been life on Mars at some point in the past? And I think that's kind of the ultimate goal, at least for a lot of people in the, in the general public. That's what we want to find out, because if we can understand Mars better, then we can understand Earth better. Maven, program manager at Lockheed Martin in Denver, Guy Butel Cheese. Maven's due for launch in November, and we'll put a link to the Maven mission on our Facebook page and on our blog, spaceboffins.co.uk and spaceboffins.com. Boys, I call you boys. Look at it. That's <laughs> <laughs> just making you feel young. Um, do you, do you, are you going to keep? A, yeah, it's flattery. Yeah. Are, are you going to keep an eye on, on this mission? Because let's face it, missions to Mars don't necessarily have a good success rate, Robert. Oh, fingers crossed. You know, it, it, you're right. I mean, of course, there's the great Martian ghoul and the fact that a certain fraction of them don't reach their destination for, for all manner of reasons. But fingers crossed for this one and all the others. I mean, it's not, you know, there's, a, there's still an ongoing suite of missions to Mars to follow. So I'm pretty confident most of them will make it. David? Oh, I'd echo that exactly. Uh, Mars is um, a wonderful target, but it's also extremely dangerous. So fingers crossed, touch wood, all these things. But of course one wants to see it go. And indeed, I think if we're really ever going to have people on Mars, you've got to do much more than scrape around and discuss a little corner of Mars. You've got to understand the planet as a whole. And that will require missions like MAVEN to give you the big picture, to put the whole story together. 
And these, all these missions really fit into a, a jigsaw and also, I suppose, I hate the phrase, but this roadmap really to humans on, on the surface. It, it looks like we're going to have a continuous series of Mars missions over certainly the next decade. That's one of the wonderful things about being around at this point in time. I mean, come on, from the 70s to the 90s, we had almost no Mars missions. Suddenly, human beings are taking like Mars... come at once, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's taking Mars seriously. I feel so much more optimistic about Mars exploration now than I would have been if you'd been interviewing me a decade and a half ago, and that's great. It is indeed. And that's the Space Boffins podcast. Our thanks to Robert Massey and David Southwood and the Royal Astronomical Society. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, ABSL Space Products, and with a grant from the UK Space Agency. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientist, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and spaceboffins.com. And we'll be back next month with another dispatch from the final frontier. Thanks for listening.